It's been a while since we were in the book of Romans, so we're back to it today. When we left off before Christmas, we were talking about spiritual gifts. We're going to finish that section of chapter 12. Lord willing, today, continue with the chapter. In the weeks ahead, we'll do a little bit of review. And I'm sure if you're like me, you forgot a lot about what we talked about before Christmas. So we'll go back and do some review. God is good, isn't he? God is good all the time. And God is great. We sang about him this morning. Even in difficult times, it's so good to see Glenn and Corey this morning. Um, been some time. Corey uh, had bad infection, got in her leg. And uh, for some time, I've, we rot, walked a similar road with the infection I had to fight, so I kind of know that journey. Corey lost a leg. And um, it's just good to see Corey. And also to just see how the Lord has carried them and given them a perspective through that difficulty that God is good. And he's in control. And so it's good to see you both. Romans chapter 12. Let's just read the text. We'll pray. Ask the Lord's blessing. We'll kind of jump in with both feet. And we'll run along as, about as long as we can. And then we'll quit. I, I, let's just pick up in verse 3. It's been a while. First two verses... We've been appealed to to present ourselves as living sacrifices, to not be conformed to the world, to be transformed, be metamorphosized, so we can understand what God's will is. And then he says, for by the grace that is given to me, I say to everyone among you, stop thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think. Evaluate yourself with sober judgment. Each according to the measure of the faith that God has assigned. Whereas in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually we are members of one another. So when one member of the body hurts, we all hurt. When one member of the body rejoices, we all rejoice. We're all one in Christ, having gifts that differ according to the grace that has been given to us individually. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Lord, I come before you and I thank you that when you ascended on high, you sent your spirit and you gave gifts to men. Dave read to us this morning how you promised, Lord Jesus, in the upper room when you spoke with your disciples that you would send your 
your spirit, the comforter, the spirit of truth who would guide us, who would direct us, who would empower us. The armor flesh can do nothing. It's not by might, it's not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And so, Father, please forgive us that so many times we, your children, rely upon the arm of flesh. And because we are not abiding in Christ, we can do nothing. So, Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would empower our lives in such a way that we would bring forth fruit, fruit that will remain. We give you this time. We pray your spirit would bless in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're talking about gifts. Here's where we're going. We're going to do a real quick review. Then we're going to look at an enumeration of the gifts that are listed here, the seven that are listed. Um, and then we're going to do an explanation of the gifts. So today we're doing a review. We're just going to look at the list, and then we're going to explain them. Now in verses 6 through 8, we have seven lists. Seven gifts that are listed. And then, where we're going to go next week is when we get to verse 9, and we go to the end of the chapter in, in verse 21, what I want you to notice is when we get to that section, this list is going to be fleshed out. He's going to tell us what it looks like to do these things. And so he's going to tell us things like, let love be genuine. He's going to tell us things like, outdo one another in showing honor. He's going to say in verse 11, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. He's going to flesh out in these next verses what it looks like to fulfill and to practice these gifts. And so we're still talking about gifts in a sense, as we get down into the end of the chapter, and we look at them, the illustration of what it looks like to live and to do these things. And what I want you to think about is this. When the Spirit's gifts are employed in our life, He energizes us, not so much just to perform tasks, although He does energize us to do the task. Rather, He energizes us and he changes us, he transforms us to be a certain kind of person. Amen. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing in the gifts. It's not just about what we do, it's about who we are. And when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are walking in his power, he is transforming our nature in such a way that we put others in front of ourselves. We bless and we do not curse. We don't take vengeance for ourselves. And so we will see how these gifts actually flesh out in the way God wants us to live 24-7 every day of the week as we interact with each other and with the world. That's what gifts are all about. So today, we're just going to look, do a review, we're going to enumerate them, and then we're going to explain them. So here, let's just go real quick. Here's the review. Now, these are things we talked about, so you're going to have to hold on tight to these, because we're buzzing through them. I mean, I'm flipping screens and reading them. We're going. Here we go. 
When we think about these things, some actions don't require a gift, they just require obedience. When we talk about the gift of giving, you say, I don't got that gift. I like to receive. Okay? Listen. There are actions, and it's not about whether or not this is your primary giftedness. God just says, do it. Obey me. Okay? Some actions don't require a gift. They just require our obedience. God gives all men gifts, but he only gives spiritual gifts to his kids. Okay? So everybody out there in the world has abilities. Many worldly people that are great musicians. They do it for their own glory. I'm not saying in a, in a sadistic way. But, you know, it's about me. And then God gives gifts to Christian people, his kids, to perform, do music. And it's not about me. It's about God's glory. So it's the orientation. So God gives gifts to everybody, but spiritual gifts are given to his kids. Because we have the spirit. Don't seek gifts. Seek God. Don't seek the gifts. Seek God. This is kind of the message in 1 Corinthians we won't go any further with that. Some gifts are temporary. They're just for the need of the moment. God gives you an ability to do something you didn't know you could do, and God brings it to your mind. You do it. It's for his glory, and it may not be something you ever do again in your life. It's not in the possession of these gifts. It's in the spirit and walking in the spirit, being filled with the spirit. So some gifts are temporary. They're for the need of the moment. Some gifts are permanent, though, for the continuing edification of the church. And um, they're kind of the endowment the Lord has given you to just use in ministry in the body and in the world for his glory. Gifts are developed with use. They diminish with neglect. God called me to preach his word. My primary gift, when he called me to do that, when I started out, I had not the inkling of what I was doing. Over time, I developed the gift more and more. I'm not where I want to be, not where I should be, but I've grown. I'm not where I was when I was 19. Okay? So, with use, we develop them. If we neglect them, we diminish their use. Uh, we, we, we diminish... Our abilities. So when we're talking about a grace gift, we're talking about charisma here. That's the word we're talking about when we're talking about gifts. That's where we get the word charismatic movement. We won't go into that today in any way, but just it's a Greek word, charisma. It is a gracious gift. It's not something you earn. It's not something that God gave to you because you're the best thing on the planet. God gave it to you and me. In fact, because I don't deserve it. It was his grace. It's a grace gift. So spiritual gifts, the adjective is our focus. We're not just talking about gifts. These are gifts that are generated by the Holy Spirit. They are for the purpose of spiritual things. The edification of the church, the glory of God, the evangelization of the world. But they all relate to God's work in the world to further his kingdom. They are spiritual, and so they operate in the spirit realm, but empowered by the spirit. They may look like anything else in the world. There again, someone who's doing music. It looks like this in the world. It looks like this in the church. 
They may look exactly the same, but the one has a completely different function. One is for the glory of God, for the edification of the church, and the evangelization of the world. We talked about the two categories. We looked in 1 Peter chapter 4. As each received a gift, each believer receives a gracious gift from God, we are to use it in serving one another. Not for me, for you. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Now notice that, varied grace. We are stewards of what God has given, and that grace that he gives, you can't just put it in a box. It is varied. And so the gifts are as individualistic as there are individuals. No one person or no one gift looks identically the same in every situation. No, we're all individuals, and so we all have a blending of gifts that God gives to us, and these gifts are varied. There are two basic categories that we talked about, speaking gifts and serving gifts. So whoever speaks is to speak as it is the very oracles of God, the very words of God. Whoever serves is to serve by the strength that God supplies. And what is the purpose? So that in everything, who is glorified? God. Through Jesus Christ, God does not share his glory with man. He is a jealous God. He will be glorified. And he does so by giving gifts that we don't deserve. And then he gets the glory. So, let's build on this. Here's the list. I hope you can read that. I wanted to get them on one slide. I probably, put a, probably should have put them on two. Seven gifts in the list. Let's just run through them real quick. Think about what they are and summarize them. There's the gift of prophecy. We already studied this. We're not going to even deal with it this morning, but it is essentially just the speaking of God's word. There's the gift of teaching. The gift of teaching is the explaining of God's word. The gift of exhortation is the ability to apply God's word. All three of those gifts many times are found in one individual with one being priority and another one being lesser, but usually those three things are coupled so, or, or joined together. So in the book of Acts, it'll say of the Apostle Paul, he went to the church at Ephesus and when he was at the church at Ephesus, he taught them and he exhorted them to stay firm in the grace of God. He taught them and he exhorted them. He did them both. So usually you see these things a part of the same type of speaking ministry, but some people will be a little bit more apt in the exhortation. Some will be a little bit more apt in the explanation. Some will be a little more apt to just lay down the hammer, you know, and they just speak God's word. Gift of serving, we talked about this before Christmas, that's just being the hands and feet of Jesus in the world, right? It's just serving. It's just serving in his name. It's giving a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus and God remembering that and being glorified through it. The gift of distribution or giving is the dispensing of God's resources to God's people and to the world. And so he says, give with what? Liberality. We'll come back to that. Gift of leadership. This is just managing and overseeing God's work. 
using God's people to do it. The gift of mercy is simply showing God's compassion to the hurting. Now, what does this mean? Here's some characteristics in the text. So when we prophesy, we are to prophesy in proportion to the faith. We talked about that, the, the analogy of the faith. That the prophetic word, the word of God, is primary. And all man's prophecies must come from the word that God has given. And it must be in line with it. And if somebody tells you something that is contrary to God's written word, you don't go with this new revelation. Just because somebody said they got one. If it doesn't line up with the word of God, you disregard that prophecy in proportion to the faith. Teaching in the teaching, exhortation in the exhortation. What does that mean? Hang around for a few minutes and I'll explain. Serving in our service. <clears throat> when we distribute, we are to do so what? Generously. When we lead, we are to do what? Be zealous. When we show mercy, we are to do so how? Cheerfully. Okay, that's the list. Let's explain them. We're going to start at the back of the list and work to the front. So let's start with mercy and move towards teaching. And we'll see if we get all the way there. What does it get to mercy? What does it mean to be merciful? He says to be so cheerfully. Now, when we think about this word mercy, it's a similar word in the original language to the word that is used in Matthew 6 for the giving of alms, A-L-M-S. The, the ministry to beggars or the needy. But the word carries with it a, a connotation that is not just about the act of putting money in the cup to give to somebody in need. It's about the heart of the individual that spurs the action. That God gives to people an ability, a supernatural ability, to share in the sorrow and the hurt of another human being. To show them mercy. To show them compassion. How many times do we see somebody in need and our heart is like, well, I wonder what you did to deserve that. Or, why don't you just go get a job? Whatever the case. I'm not, I'm not saying that the person who's in need is always legitimately in need. I'm just saying, when I look at myself and I see people at need, a lot of times, my heart ain't where it should be. But what we're seeing here is, when we are walking in the Spirit and we are prompted by the Spirit, he, this shows the heart of God. He does not look at our misery and plight, our poor decisions, and be like, well, you just deserve that. 
He feels compassion. So this is the supernatural endowment by the Spirit to see people who are either physically suffering or spiritually suffering and to empathize with them, to feel their sorrow. And to do so how? Cheerfully. Now what does that mean? What does it mean to, to, to minister to somebody who's suffering, who's going through deep sorrow, who's going through consequences of personal sin, and then to minister to them cheerfully. What does that mean? First thing that it doesn't mean, let me just say this. It, it does not mean that you're giddy about it. It doesn't mean you're silly or you make light of it. It's not like a lighthearted levity. That's not what he's talking about here. Like, you know, you just see somebody that's hurting, and I'm going to make it all better by laughing about it. Well, that kind of stinks, doesn't it? It's kind of like what the proverb says, he who sings heart, or, excuse me, he who sings songs to a heavy heart, and I'll just paraphrase it, is like a moron. He who sings songs to someone with a heavy heart, it doesn't go together. So he's not talking about coming to somebody in a cheerful way that you're just giddy and you're silly and you're just trying to lift them up and make it go away. That's not really sensitive to what that person is experiencing at that time. So what does he mean here when he says we are to do so cheerfully? You know, we are told in the scripture, we'll see this, we are to weep with what? Those who weep. We're to rejoice with those who rejoice. So what does he mean when he says we're to be cheerful? He's talking about a kindness and a graciousness of spirit that just simply lifts the eyes of the sufferer from their present circumstance to the Lord and gives them hope. Because at that moment when the person is suffering, what are they experiencing? Hopelessness. A lot of times they're feeling like God's really out to get me at the moment. And somebody comes along and shows them mercy. What they're really trying to do, what you're trying to do is you're coming along somebody and you're coming alongside them and you're understanding, you're empathizing and you're lifting their eyes to the Lord and you're giving them hope. And so it's not a superficial thing. Next one. He says we are to lead with zeal. We are to lead with zeal. Now, the Greek word to lead here means to stand before. Proistomy. just means to stand in front of. The word zeal is translated many different ways in the New Testament. It sometimes it's translated diligence. Sometimes it's translated to labor, to endeavor, to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Be zealous to keep the unity of the Spirit. To be careful. To be attentive. To do something quickly. So what is he talking about here when he says we are to lead with zeal? In Romans 12, verse 11, he says this. 
Do not be slothful in zeal. Do not be slothful in zeal. So what is he talking about when we think about this kind of thing? He's talking about a diligent care and attentiveness. God doesn't want us to procrastinate. He wants us to do things quickly. He doesn't want us to put it off. He wants us to lead in such a way that we do what needs to be done. And that we do so diligently and attentively. This word to lead is used in other places in the New Testament. Let's just go through them real quickly. In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 12, he says, We ask you, brothers, give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. Regard them highly in love because of the work. Be at peace among yourselves. So what does he say there? There are some in the church who labor among the church leading. And he gives directions concerning them. In 1 Timothy 5.17, he uses the same word. Elders who are good leaders should be considered worthy of an ample honorarium or return, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. And so there he uses the word that we are looking at here in Romans 12, and he's applying it to the elders, the elders who are good leaders. He also, in 1 Timothy 3, uses this word to apply it in the qualification of elders to what men do in their home. So he says, one who manages his own household competently, having his children under control with all dignity. If anyone does not know how to manage his own house, how can he take care of God's church? And then he applies it also to the deacons. When he says deacons or servants or ministers, must be husbands of one wife managing their kids and their own households competently. So this is the same word. Now, we'll apply some of this next week when we look at these illustrations of what it looks like to manage and what it looks like to lead. But here's one just big thing that I just jumped out at me when I was thinking of this. The Greek word is proistomy, and it means what? To stand before. Now, he's not talking about rank like he's more important. He's just talking about someone who stands before others. And this is like a, like a no-brainer, simple thing, but it's the truth. You can't lead from behind. Amen. You can't lead from behind. You lead from where? In front. Men, we need to manage our families. What does that mean? Step up to the plate and with diligence, endeavor to competently go before your family in the Lord and the way they should go. You can't be from behind saying go that way when you're not. You don't lead from behind. You lead from in front. Okay, next one, distribute. Distribute liberally. To give, now it's interesting, John Calvin, in his explanation of this list, takes this gift and says this gift is not so much about your individual giving, although we could apply it. John Calvin says this gift is speaking more about the distribution, those who are entrusted by the church, 
with distributing the funds that have been entrusted to the church. So it's like Acts 6. There are widows who are in need. They need to eat. The apostles bring in some deacons and they give them that job. Those men who were given the responsibility of distributing to the care of those widows by the church, what does he tell them to do in caring for the widows? Make sure they're beggars? Is that what they're to do? What are they to do? They are to make sure that those widows are cared for how? Well. That's what he's getting at here. The church has a responsibility to those who God brings our way to care for. We don't want missionaries on the field who are starving for the glory of God. Right? We as a church, when we hear of a need amongst our missionaries, amongst our widows, or amongst people in our church who go through a difficult time, we have a responsibility to distribute funds to minister to them, and we are to do so how? Liberally. We need to think about that when we think about how we give as a church. Uh, it should have, this one, should have a direct bearing on how the church budgets, how we look at our giving and our distribution outside of ourselves and even internally to those who are in need. So this is what we're talking about in this one, and uh, we are to do so liberally, and um, there are verses in Corinthians that bring that out. Let's see. So there's kind of a distribution here thing. There's a balance. You know, it doesn't honor God for the church to dispense funds in a miserly fashion. That does not honor God when we're Scrooges for the glory of God. No way. When we have special speakers and they come here, they don't do it on their own dime. You don't muzzle the ox that feeds you. We put them up, we feed them, we send them off with an honoraria. I mean, they don't need to drive a Lexus or whatever. I get that stuff, you know, with the prosperity gospel, name it, claim it stuff. They don't need that. But we're going to take care of people. It would make me as a pastor feel like horrible before the Lord. If we had special speakers who went away from here and said, I'm never going to that church again because of the way they took care of me. That doesn't honor the Lord. Doesn't bring glory to his name. And by the way, I don't think that ever happens. I'm not saying not to pick on us. I'm saying because I think we're doing a job there that I think honors the Lord. But we need to think about those truths. Okay, so let's talk about the speaking gifts. Prophecy is one of them. Teaching and exhortation. Prophecy, teaching, exhortation. Let's run through these real quick. We've got a few minutes. And I want to take a minute with these because I think this is important. As a church... We want to grow individually and as a group in the exercise of these gifts, which means 
you know, some of you here are going to be really heavy on a gift of mercy, those kind of things. There are people in here, though, that God's calling to teach, to exhort. We want to help you with that, too. So I want to talk for a little bit about teaching and exhortation so that when you're teaching, maybe it's in an Awana class, maybe it's a youth group under Pastor Matt, maybe it's in a small group, we think about ways that we teach and what this means. So let's talk about teaching and exhortation, the explaining and the application of God's word and, and how we are to do this and what he is saying in the text. Now, just notice the text. He says, when you teach, you are to, the teaching is to be what? What's the phrase? In the teaching. And then he says, exhortation in the exhortation. Well, what in the world does that mean? You know, I meditated on that phrase for like hours this week. Think about what in the world does he mean by that? Teaching in the teaching. Exhortation in the exhortation. Suddenly it dawned on me by the Holy Spirit. I know it was. Because it wasn't me. What he's getting at here. Here's what he's getting at. In the. That is a preposition and a prepositional phrase. Now I don't want to bore you with grammar, but I want you to think about what he's doing here. He says, when you teach, that teaching is to be in the teaching. When you exhort, that exhortation is to be in the exhortation. Here's what he's saying. The gift of teaching and exhortation derives from the word. He is using the teaching and the exhortation as a nominative. And he is using it to refer to the scripture. He's saying this. When you teach, the spiritual gift of teaching is not teaching math. Although it's great to teach math. We need to know math. We need to know science. We need to know history. But the spiritual gift of teaching in the church is what? It is in the teaching. It is the word. When you teach, when you teach in a small group, when you teach in Awana, what are you to teach? The word. Now, let's think about what he's getting at here. Don't teach your own doctrines. Don't exhort your own hobby horses. Don't exhort your own pet peeves. How easy is it to do that? Oh, we get some burr under our saddle pad about what's going on in the world, and it's just a big deal to me, and I'm going to let everybody know about it. And sometimes they get outside the bounds of truth. And what he's saying to us as men... And women, as we teach God's word to each other, is our teaching for God to accomplish what God wants to accomplish through it. He will only accomplish what he wants to accomplish if we teach his word. 
if we exhort each other with his word, not just our own opinions. So, essentially what he's saying is this. The teaching and the exhortation of the church must be rooted and grounded in Scripture. If it is not, it's not the spiritual gift that God wants to use. He blesses not my opinion. What does he bless? His word. So, here's where we're going with this. Let's think about this. Let's think about teaching for a minute. Uh, okay, let, let, let's talk about exhortation. Parakaleo is the Greek word. In the nominative, it is the word to comfort. So, the Holy Spirit is who? The comforter. He is the one called alongside to help us. That is this word to exhort. And so, it is translated many different ways in the New Testament. In 1 John, Jesus is... is called our advocate. He is our advocate. That is the nominative of this word, to exhort. So he is a comforter, he is an advocate. Um, and sometimes the word is translated to beseech, sometimes to console, sometimes to correct. It's really taking the word of God and applying it to specific situations and bringing about a response. To teach... This is Jesus' methodology, isn't it? I just looked up the word in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 2, Jesus goes and he sits on a mountain and he begins to teach. You see him teaching with authority. You see him teaching in parables. You see Jesus teaching in the synagogues. You see him teaching on the hills. You see Jesus teaching in the villages. You see Jesus teaching by the lake. You see Jesus teaching in the city. You see him teaching in the country. You see him teaching on the Sabbath. You see him teaching in the morning. You see him teaching at night. You see him teaching every day. Amen. Jesus taught. When we teach... Let's say you are called by the Lord to teach a small group. You're called by the Lord to teach a Bible study, steel on steel, or iron sharpens iron, not steel on steel, or Awana. Fatal flaw. Fatal flaw. To go into your study before you teach. And you're going to get ready to teach something. And you sit down and you ask this question of yourselves. What do I want to say to these people? That's not the starting point. What do I want to say to these people? Politicians do that. It's okay. In the church, not. Not what do I want to say. Here's, here's the question that you start with. What has God said to these people? And you start with the word. 
You don't start with your presuppositions. You start with the Word. You go into the Word and you simply dissect it. You're studying the book of Ephesians and in your small group, you're on chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 and now it's your week to do those verses. What do you do? How do you go about it? Oh, I'll just go get John MacArthur's study Bible and I'll read it and I'll just share what John MacArthur thought. Wrong answer. Get a life. Do the hard work. What do you do? You pay careful attention to words in their relationship to other words and the immediate context. You just dig into the words. What you are doing when you study the Scripture to teach it is you are knocking on the door of the text in front of you until finally the Holy Spirit opens it up to you. Not until finally you found the right commentary to tell you what you want to say. Don't start there. It is the lazy man's way of doing it. And I don't want you to be lazy as Christians. Start in the Word and knock on it. Just keep pounding at it. What does he mean? What does this sentence mean? What does that word mean? How does that word fit with that word? And then you don't have to have some alliterated outline. You don't have to be cool and fancy. You know what you do? You go into that small group and you say this. This is what God said. And this is what it means. And this is how you do it. And you know what? God will bless that. It may not be cool and fancy, but it's what God uses. It's this. So, you see this at work in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. When Ezra comes to the people and he reads the law, they read out of the book of the law of God. They translate it into words that people can understand. And they give the meaning so that the people could understand what was read. That's our goal on Sunday morning. We come together to study this book. Whoever's doing the study. We come to study this book. We come to look deeply into it. Say, what has God said? What does that mean? And how can I do it? That's all it is. Sometimes there's a catchy story, a neat poem, whatever. But it's not about that. It's about this. When we teach, our teaching is to be in the teaching. When we exhort, our exhortation is to be in the exhortation. Not on your own private opinions, not on your own hobby horses, to the law and to the prophets. Thus saith the Lord. Let's close. Father, we thank you for your word. As we think about these things today, I pray that you would help the people of this church that as we minister to one another with the gifts that you have given us, that you would use them for your glory and for your gain. 
And Lord, help us to use these gifts according to the parameters that you have laid out in your word. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we sing our closing song together? Father, Lord, we thank you. Lord, we pray, Lord, that you would have first place in all of our lives, Lord, that you would use us, use the gifts that you have given us to bring glory to yourself, that others may know and see who you are. Lord, we thank you. Use us, we pray in Jesus' name.